want to thank you all for uh, this opportunity to share God's Word again uh, with you. Uh, I greatly appreciated the, the ministry of the, the worship team leading our praise for Christian. That prayer was wonderful for me. Clara, your solo sets this up perfectly. Doug, as you have said, we've known each other for many many years. And even Pastor Jay, I want to thank Pastor Jay, wherever he may be right now, for this invitation to, to return and share with you again. I, I think I've been here on and off on occasion for over 20 years, 20 years. Uh, I was a very young man back then, very young man <laughs> back then. I was actually a child when I served with Doug's father <laughs> as a district superintendent. Three years ago, I was here in the summer out under the tent. The tent was new then. It was during the height of the pandemic. And then about two years ago, as Doug mentioned, I was here again. We were back in the sanctuary, but the pandemic was still in force. We were kind of winding down for that. But, you know, the pandemic was a difficult time it was difficult in terms of health, obviously, but racially, politically, the pandemic was a difficult time. And from my perspective, the last couple of years haven't gotten any better. That's, that's the depressing news today. If you watch the news, it's mostly depressing. The world hasn't gotten any better. The Christian life is tough. We're living in a world that in so many ways is antithetical to the gospel. People who do not worship God, and for many don't even care about God. And the Christian life is difficult, very difficult. And so I think we need to live the Christian life with the end in mind. Not necessarily just the present, though the present is very real, but we need to live the Christian life with the end in mind. Stephen Covey wrote a book a number of years ago, and his first point for, for planning, for successful planning, was that you have to begin with the end in mind. We have to live with the end in mind. Con considering the struggles, the trials, the challenges that we may be facing. You know, a lot of people read the end of a book before they start because they want to know how the book ends. Many people, my, my wife will do that. She'll, she'll get a novel and she'll read the end of the novel the last few pages before she, she reads the book. Well, that's kind of what we're doing now as we anticipate the future. And I believe that we should praise Jesus knowing that our ultimate victory belongs to him. We should praise Jesus knowing that our ultimate victory belongs to him. Now, the context of our passage, the passage that, that was read for us, that Doug read for us earlier on, the context of our passage is the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 19, and it's basically the, the end of the age, the end of the age. And it's what we've been calling the marriage supper of the Lamb or the marriage banquet of the Lamb. God's people have been raised the first resurrection to join him for this marriage supper, anticipating the introduction of the bridegroom. And there's so much scripture we don't have time to go into that deals with the end of the age. 
We're going to look at this aspect today. It's a victory celebration that's taking place in those verses prior to our passage. And we're expecting the fulfillment of the times with rejoicing and worship. Verses 7 and 8 read this way of chapter 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him, Jesus, glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride, us, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then we go into our passage frequently called in Scripture the Battle of Armageddon. Now, the, the aftermath of that, chapter 20, ap- chapter 20 is basically the millennial kingdom prior to the second resurrection and the great white throne judgment for the unsaved dead at that point. So the great white throne and the millennial kingdom are after our episode this morning. Now, We must say that there are graphic images in this passage. That doesn't mean that they don't represent reality. Just because it's a picture that John is giving to us from his vision. They are graphic. There is emotion involved. Not to get us to speculate all the details. But there is underlying reality to these visions truth to these visions. It is real, and it's not, though, something for us to delve into in great detail. We want to get the big picture. We want to get the big picture. It's not fiction. It's not the good versus evil stories of the silver screen or of the novels. This, my friends, is reality. We will praise God more enthusiastically by examining the two assurances that are given in John's visions in this chapter. Two assurances from two visions in this chapter. First, the vision of the warrior king. The vision of the warrior king. Our victorious hero, the historic Christ, the incarnate Christ is going to return And he is going to complete his work in this world. He's completed the work of salvation on the cross, redemption of those who would believe. That work is done. But the victorious Christ, where he brings it to completion, is still yet for us today. Let's read again verses 11 through 16. John says, I saw, that's his vision, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
First, let's briefly look at the four names. There's four names listed here for Jesus, the historic Christ coming again. First, faithful and true. He's called faithful and true. He is faithful because he is the epitome of truth, and he cannot deny himself. He is faithful and true. Truth, truth. What is truth? Pilate asked that question. What is truth? Truth is basically reality as only God knows it. We don't have perfect truth. No one in this world has perfect truth. No one has ever had perfect truth. No matter what we perceive, no matter what we may think we know, only one has perfect truth, God, God himself, and this Jesus, this Jesus. Truth is reality as only God knows it. And Jesus is faithful and true. Second, a name that is known to no one but he himself. The mystery name. Because when all is said and done, we don't understand God. We can't. God is still a mystery. Scripture gives us great information. We know about his attributes his love and his power, his grace and his mercy. We know about his wrath, which we even see in this chapter. We know about God, and we come to know him in Jesus through faith in Jesus. But he's still a mystery because he's both lamb who was slain and the lion of Judah. How can that be? He is both God and he is man. A name that no one knows but he himself because there is still so much mystery to our Savior and Lord. Third, he's the Word of God. The Word of God incarnate. John chapter 1. John knew very well about the Word of God. He wrote his gospel. And now he sees the Word of God incarnate in the flesh in this vision of his return. The Word of God incarnate. All that God tells us about himself, about us, about the world, about what has been and what is coming. The inerrant word of God is Jesus. And then lastly, King of kings and Lord of lords. Used elsewhere in Scripture. This title is used elsewhere. It's used actually earlier in 1 Timothy 6, 12 through 15, where Paul is talking about the return of Christ. The apostle Paul there in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is talking about Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. But again, in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, just a few chapters prior to this, we see this name also given where we read this. They, meaning the nations... They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. That's us. See, in chapter 17 of Revelation, what we're we're reading today was anticipated already. This event, the returning of Christ, is already anticipated as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And we are his followers. We're dressed in white linen. We're the ones on those white horses. It's not the angels of heaven that are his army following him. It's us in fine white linen as his faithful followers. Jesus, faithful and true, mysterious, the word of God, 
King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our coming Jesus. But then there's three actions in these verses as well as we get this picture, the vision of the warrior king. There's three actions that he, that he uh, performs as he returns. First, he will judge. He will judge. He will rule with an iron scepter. This is referred to actually all the way back in Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, where it talks about the coming king ruling with an iron scepter. Jesus will judge and rule. It also says that he will wage war, the war that's coming in just a few verses. He will wage war. talks about him striking them down. It's interesting that word, strike down the nations, can also be used as butcher. It's the same word for butcher. He will butcher the nations. It's a graphic image. How will he do this? With the sword that comes out of his mouth. The sword, the sword of the Spirit, the written word of God. He will strike them down. The word of God spoken will be the tool. And then lastly, he will tread them down in the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Tread them down. Robe dipped in blood. Now, some think that this robe dipped in blood may be his own blood from the cross. I'm not convinced of that interpretation. I think this is anticipating the blood of his enemies. The robe dipped in blood is anticipating what he will do to his enemies in the following verses. The reason I believe that goes back all the way to Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 3, where we have a preliminary vision of what will yet take place on this final day. Isaiah chapter 63 reads this way. Who is coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? Quote, it is I, Jesus speaking, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save, unquote. Why are your garments red, Isaiah asked. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? Jesus responds, quote, I have, treaden, I have tread the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing, unquote. You see, we don't trample the winepress of God. Our robes are fine linen, white and clean. Jesus alone tramples the winepress of the wrath of God. He is judge. He strikes down. He treads the winepress. Yes, this is a bloody robe, but it anticipates the blood of his enemies. So... What do we see in these verses, this first vision? Getting the picture here, if you will. Get this picture of who this is. First, it's preceded by the wedding supper of the Lamb. So we're expecting the bridegroom, right? Isn't that what we would be expecting? The bridegroom. But what we get is the warrior king who's defending his honor. That's who this Jesus is. He's the lion, not the lamb. He is the warrior king defending his armor. That takes place. 
That takes place at this point. He's our champion. He's our unconquerable hero, if you will. Yes, he's a savior to his followers, and so we praise him. We worship him because he is our savior, but he is a horror to his enemies. It depends on your perspective. A savior to his followers, but a horror to his enemies. Get the picture here. This is not Gandalf fighting the Balrog in the mines of, Nar of uh, uh, in, Mar in Narnia. Not Narnia. <laughs> the mines of... Thank you. Moria. Moria. Thank you. I, I, I get my fiction jumbled up here sometimes. Yes, this is not Gandalf fighting the Balrog in the mines of Moria. Uh, this, is, this is also not a superhero that's been bitten by a radioactive insect. <laughs> this, is not, this is not a warrior who needs a suit of armor made of adamantium. No, he doesn't need that suit of armor made of adamantium. And he certainly doesn't have a magical hammer. He has the sword that comes out of his mouth, which is the word of God. You see, this is the God of the universe. This is the King of kings. This is the Lord of lords. That is our Jesus defending his honor on our behalf because he has redeemed us from sin and he will no longer tolerate sin in anyone else. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus. The second vision What's the second vision? It's the vision of the earthly battle. Now we come to the vision of the earthly battle where there is victory over evil. Victory over all of the evil of this world. Once again, reading verses 17 through 21. And I saw, John seeing a vision again here, an angel standing in the sun who cried, cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. This is a gruesome picture. If this was a film, it would be rated PG-13. So I must warn you, this is a gruesome picture that we're going to deal with here in these next few verses. But there's little drama. The end was already known from the beginning, as gruesome as it may be. But I want you to get the picture here as well. These birds, carrion birds, vultures, we might say, are invited to this supper of God to eat people. What a contrast to the wedding supper of the lamb where people are eating the lamb's banquet laid out for us. What a contrast. The wedding supper of the lamb versus this, the great supper of God, where it's the birds who are gorging themselves on flesh. They're invited to this supper, a supper of kings, mighty men. But notice, free and slave, small and great. All people will be represented here in this 
great supper of God in this battle. All people, all walks of life, all who have opposed the coming king are represented in this picture. That's reality. All who have opposed the coming king are represented in this picture. Ezekiel verse 39, verses 17 and following, give us again an anticipation of this from the Old Testament perspective. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals. Assemble and come together from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you, the great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. There you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as if they were rams and lambs, goats and bulls, all of them fattened animals from Bashan. At the sacrifice I am preparing for you, you will eat fat till you are glutted and drink blood till you are drunk. At my table you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and soldiers, people of every kind, declares the sovereign Lord. What an image. God's calling the birds of the air together for the great supper of God. And then we come to the actual battle, the second part of this vision, if you will. We come to the actual battle, and there is no battle. That's what's amazing about these next few verses in Revelation. There is no that battle. Let's pick up with Revelation 19, verse 19. Then I saw, John goes on, and then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army, Jesus. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive, the beast and the false prophet, thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest, the rest, the people were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. The rest of the people are killed to await the second resurrection, chapter 20, the second chapter resurrection and the great white throne judgment. The beast and the false prophet are immediately thrown into the lake of fire, and the people are killed and devoured by the birds. We call this the battle of Armageddon, but notice... There is no battle because it's an effortless victory on the part of Jesus, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. It's an effortless victory because he has all the power of the universe at his disposal to wipe out his enemies and evil. Those who died worshipped the wrong person. Those who died had not had their sin redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so their sin requires punishment as the king defends his honor. They worshipped the wrong person, the beast. 
and the false prophet. Many worshiped sin itself. Many didn't care whether they were forgiven or not. But these are the consequences of unrepentant sin and evil in our world. The victory of Christ in overcoming evil. We will behold that. It will be vindication for Jesus, and it will be vindication for us who have lived as his followers free from sin, free from its power, free from its penalty, and at that day, free from its very presence. What a victory that will be. Jesus will win that victory for us. A day of victory over evil that we have anticipated so long. Do you get the picture here? The assurance here is that we have an unconquerable hero, an assurance that there will be righteous judgment upon evil. There will be righteous judgment upon evil, and it will be meted out by the only one who is qualified to do it, and that's Jesus. None of us are qualified to do this. Revenge is mine, says the Lord. None of us are qualified. Only Jesus, only Jesus can bring righteous judgment upon evil. <laughs> the picture here, though, is gruesome. <sighs> Maybe a little comic relief. We could call this the carrion corral. No, the, the, the carrion corral doesn't work, you know, the, the golden corral. Oh, how about this one? How about this one? The vultures... Buffet. The Vulture's Country Buffet. There we go. The Vulture's Country Buffet. You see, we can look at this and see how gruesome it is, but it's our victory. It's our victory that Jesus wins for us because God hates evil far more than we do. Far more than we do. So, as your pastor would say, I think it's time to land the plane. Or, or maybe put the car in the garage out of the rain. <laughs> Christ's ultimate victory over evil should give his followers great encouragement now. Christ's victory over evil should give his followers great encouragement now. You know, in two days we're going to celebrate the 4th of July. The 4th of July. Freedom from oppression... Christian mentioned this, referred to this in his prayer this morning. Freedom from oppression. And yet the greatest oppressor, oppressor of all is sin. Sin is the greatest oppressor of all. And yet people have always been free to sin. Always. And that's true in our world today. True in our country. People are free to sin. We're not the ones to stop that. Yes, we have freedom from the oppression of a foreign power, England, that we celebrate on the 4th of July. But I think Christians have a far greater celebration of freedom from sin, freedom from its penalty, eternal death, freedom from its power over us, the greatest oppressor of all, freedom from its very presence in this day yet to come. Freedom we have is to please God. 
not simply freedom to do whatever we want. We have the freedom to please God because we are followers of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this world needs that Savior. The world needs the Savior. And that Savior, this Savior, is Jesus and no one else. No one else. No politician is our Savior. No sociologist, no educator, no military general. The only one to save in this world is Jesus. He is King of kings, Lord of lords, and Savior of those who will follow him in faith. So, the first application. Compassion for unbelievers. This is a gruesome picture here of what will happen to those who don't follow Christ. Do we have compassion for them now? And that means a passion for the gospel. A passion for the gospel that sets people free in Christ. That's the first application. Compassion for people who are oppressed by sin. Passion for the gospel because Jesus will set them free. Second, we have, a poc- we have this encouragement for a su- suffering church. It's apocalyptic, it's yet future, it's predictive, yes, but we have this encouragement for us as a suffering church, as suffering Christians. We have this freedom already. It's the already part of our faith in Christ, but the final victory is not yet. But it is real, and it is coming. That final victory is coming. What encouragement this is. No matter what struggles we have in life, Jesus will deal with those struggles. He will deal with our trials, our our. our Uh, our difficulties, our, our challenges, all of the challenges that we face, all of the struggles that we face, Jesus will deal with all of those. Vindication will come and we can persevere. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, he said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus said that to the disciples in the upper room. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And we have seen in these pictures today that victory, that victory so that we can praise and worship the one, Jesus Praise and worship the one who both purchases and executes that victory on behalf of his followers. May we praise him. May we worship him every day of our lives as we anticipate the victory of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace, your goodness, And thank you most of all for giving us Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Jesus, the Lamb who was slain and the Lion of Judah. Jesus, the coming King of kings and Lord of lords, when one day all will be made right.
give us encouragement with that expectation and give us compassion for those who don't know him. May we share the gospel of freedom to bring people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the glorious light of Christ. In his name we pray.